three. And if it happens again, well, it's 14 minutes past 12 right now for a Friday afternoon. This is the bit where I invite you, as always, to join us on Facebook Live because it's Marshy Movie Time. Hello, James. How's you on the couch? <laughs> We're getting very well acquainted okay. at the moment. You've dramed uh... yourself to it. You can't. In fact, it's stuck to it. it. Yeah. Every time I peel myself away, it, it, you can just see the... Uh, the indentation of my uh, my beautiful frame. Just 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 <laughs> use right this there. as like applied learning, applied movie critique techniques and stuff. That's then you feel great about it. Well, I'm certainly learning how uncomfortable my sofa is. That's for sure, <laughs> and, and how I need a new one. <laughs> uh, all, all those all those dollars I scrimped and saved to get a cheap sofa are, are yeah. now and your uh, massive uh, your massive marshy movie time fee. I don't know how you contain yourself with that. High I know. High I, roller. Anyway, James, what have you been digging deep for this week? Okay, well, yeah, there's a number of things. Uh, Netflix has sort of spat out a few interesting things. We have Outside the Wire, which is a sort of futuristic sci-fi thriller starring Anthony Mackie oh, yeah. of Avengers fame. We have The White Tiger adaptation of the, um, was it a uh, Booker Prize winning novel? From, from a few years ago. that There's a new, a new adaptation of that, which yep. is also on Netflix as of, I think it's later today, actually. Um, yes. So sneak peek. Yeah, because I, I got to see that a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Night Stalker we could talk about, which is a, a, a one of these limited true crime series on, uh, on Netflix, all about the uh, notorious uh, Californian killer and then um i was doing a bit of catch-up as well and i finally sat down and watched a documentary that came onto netflix a few months ago mm. called my octop my octopus teacher oh look yeah uh, apparently people really like that uh yeah let's get into it shall we it's um it's the story of a south african uh well, he, he becomes a sort of, you know, a nature conservationist. I'm not sure if that's how he started out. A guy called Craig Foster, who was looking for a bit of a break. He obviously worked in sort of media, in documentary filmmaking of some description and had kind of burned himself out. And so, so took a break from everything and where he lives right on the, the southern tip of South Africa, right on the Cape of Good Hope or the Cape of Storms, as it's also known, mm. which is how he refers to it as. And he started, um, going sort of free diving in the chop very choppy waters out sort of literally on his front doorstep and he found a sort of massive underwater forest of kelp and within the forest he found this little sort of enclave this little area that was kind of sheltered from the stormy waters yeah. where there was all this life going on and he found a, a young female octopus mm. there and he began sort of just visiting every day and just following her around and very quickly it became apparent that she was none too phased by his presence and realized he wasn't a predator and there are lots of sort of pajama sharks and what have you circling around so it is kind of dangerous waters for her at the same sure. time yeah. uh, but they develop this very sort of real very nurturing and sort of respectful and curious relationship this bond you know, they, they, she, he starts sort of interacting with the octopus and uh, the octopus. It's, it is beautifully photographed. You know, obviously a lot of underwater photography uh, gives the impression that he shot a lot of it himself. Um, and so I sort of, you know, ramped up the dynamic vision and, and put it in, in, available in 4K on Netflix and what have you. And it looks absolutely gorgeous. 
Um, and over the course of sort of a year, because octopus, the lifespan of an octopus is only just about a year, you go through all of these sort of trials and tribulations as he, uh, you know, gets to understand the creature better, uh, understands its habitat, its behaviors, uh, how it hunts, how it protects itself. There are some quite traumatic moments where he has to sort of make the decision whether to intervene or not, or whether to just stand by and watch and let nature take its course as uh, sort of life-threatening, certainly for the octopus, events take place. Um, and in the meantime, it's all about a sort of a uh, process of self-healing for him. You know, like I said, he was completely sort of physically and emotionally burnt out when he started this and was, you know, doing it as some kind of sort of uh, rehab, not exactly rehab, but, you know, just as a way of recharging and he becomes completely sort of emotionally dependent upon this relationship he has with his octopus and he even goes so far as to say that he started sort of thinking like an octopus and evaluating his own life problems the way that he had uh, see the thing is none of this sounds weird yet because the immediate thing that you'd be thinking is well it's the relationship that perhaps people would have with a pet they become more than a pet they become a friend etc yeah, it's it's exactly it's exactly that kind of relationship, and you see. I mean, he compares the intelligence of an octopus to that of like a dog or a cat. You know, they really do understand communication to that degree. Obviously, they can't learn words and what have you the way a dog can. But you know, the the, the that degree of emotional understanding sort of exists. Um, now he's a he's quite an odd guy. Oh really? Uh, Craig, Craig Foster, as you might expect, and the way that he talks about his experiences um, for some people might seem a little a little much. You know, he in, he sort in, of opens what, him out. In what way would you say if you could describe that? Well, he be- yeah, I'm going to try and describe. It. He it's a very sort of vulnerable confessional uh, narration uh, where he you know, really sort of opens himself up about the problems that he was facing, but also just about how his his relationship, how his codependency with the um, octopus developed and how he began to take on some of the not uh, behaviours of the octopus. That would be a little bit too weird. But he says that he, he was getting into the same kind of mental headspace. And just to some people, I think it might come across as a little bit pretentious and just a little bit silly. Um but for me, it, it, within the context, you know, spending sort of an hour and a half with him and with the octopus and in their their environment, mm. it made perfect sense. And I've got to admit, it's a bit of a, it's a, a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I mean, it has all of the the visual um, extravagances that you would expect from a kind of David Attenborough. But this uh, is different. You know, no, blue, blue no planet, blue planet different. kind of thing. Right. I mean, it starts off with a sequence. He talks about the first, um, the first time that he ever saw the octopus, and uh, we we see it on on film. And that in it's a it's a weird behaviour where the octopus sort of grabs hold of a lot of um, shells and rocks and whatever, and sort of covers itself with them. Which was something that I had only see, seen quite recently in uh, Blue Planet Two. I think it is. I think Attenborough does a whole sort of chapter on this very odd previously undocumented behavior of an of a, the common octopus which then foster manages to capture as well and so at first you're like oh okay is this perhaps where they you know these, these two projects in tandem but it seems to be just 
a behavior that the uh, the octopus does adopt as a sort of defense mechanism sure um so i found it you know if like i said it's it's informative it's educational it's visually stimulating and impressive uh you know he's obviously you know, he is a professional photographer and documentarian and that certainly comes across but the degree of emotional um interaction and the degree of, of emotional engagement that the film has with me i was i was a little unprepared for yeah. and actually it 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 gets you and by the end i was a bit of a mess i'll be honest Were you it's, in it's quite i was i was in pieces uh so it is uh well worth if you haven't made the time for it yet i mean it's been pr quite prominently positioned yes. uh on the netflix homepage since it did come out in like september i think it's won a few documentary awards recently which is what put it back on my radar and i was like ah oh, yes I, I must get to that brilliant but i found it i found it incredibly incredibly rewarding i think you'd really get a lot out of it uh it's called my octopus teacher and uh as the title suggests it is just about sort of the, the beneficial uh, learning relationship and educational relationship between the two. I don't know how much reading you did on this. You probably did a bit, but did anybody in the sort of marine biology category start jumping up and down saying this guy's broken some serious ground or water? Uh, not to my knowledge. In fact, I think it inspired him to go a step further and create a sort of uh, conservation yeah. group to, to protect that um, habitat, that sort of ecosystem. Um, you know, he's very careful not to overstep the mark in terms of interfering. You know, a lot of the times you hear about these sort of, doc, you know, Attenborough and the like in these nature documentaries. It's like, how can you sit there and watch, you know, this this rabbit that we've been following for half an hour suddenly get torn apart? It's like, well, that's that's nature. You can't intervene. You know? Can I just tell you something here that really exactly what you're talking about i was watching some show about a guy who goes looking for extinct species to prove that they're not extinct anymore the guy goes halfway across the world to find a turtle he finds it and him and his mates pick it up and put it in a box i just what? i just i was reading about this too and people are saying leave it alone but they had to take it yeah. away because they wanted to continue there it was happily living its life and these morons took it away yeah there's one sequence in, <laughs> in the film where yeah, no, it's crazy. I mean, there's one sequence in this film where um, he's literally kind of holding hands with the octopus on the on the seabed, but he's free diving, so he doesn't have an oxygen tank with him. And they've been, you know, he's enjoying this incredibly intimate, special, you know, bridging of two species. Yeah. And he needs to go up for air, so he has to kind of slowly sort of pull himself away from the octopus, and the octopus just like grabs hold of his hand and just sits on his hand and he goes all the way up to the surface to take a few breaths and the the, the octopus comes all the way with him and it's it's it quite sort of a magical moment it it really is quite sort of beautiful and touching and really rather lovely i was quite taken by it gosh james i've never seen you so cuddly and fuzzy I know. <laughs> <laughs> i'm incredibly well, vulnerable right murder. now i think <laughs> <laughs> well, we, got, yeah, so, we got five minutes before the news join us on Facebook live if you want to I mean that is one of the best reviews I've ever heard him give and it's about an octopus <laughs> in an octopus's is, garden well, yeah yeah anyway what get can up. I say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for these things go on then what do you got <laughs> you didn't get my pun I said I'm a sucker it, for these it. things here's that six squid oh, I owe okay. you okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I mean let's hear from other people about you know the, the best sort of nature documentaries animal documentaries out there you know there are so many now the technology has got so good that it is 
uh, you, you can get really close without sort of being invasive or scaring them off. And oh, it's, it's quite it's, remarkable, the stuff you can capture now. It's amazing. All um, right, so, so let's segue from that into, into serial killers, shall Why we? Why not? That's um, perfect, yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, there's a limited series uh, called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, uh, uh, which is about uh, a, a rather unpleasant series of murders that took place in uh, the mid-'80s. Right in LA, LA County uh, and there was seen for a very long time seemingly no pattern between them. It really sort of shook the entire community and the, and the country really. Um, so at the height of all, the, all of this sort of positivity that there was in the 80s particularly in the US, particularly in LA because they had the Olympics and what have you and it was, it was like uh, you know a very, a very sort of positive period and then suddenly there are all of these incredibly sort of gruesome murders people are getting shot stabbed raped mutilated uh seemingly with no pan all around sort of the different neighborhoods and it went on for a really really long time what the documentary does it's kind of like uh four parts i think it's four one hour sections and i blew through it all in one go it was remind us the title of the game would you it's night stalker the hunt for a serial killer all right and uh he yeah, and it's, it's a true it's a true case, and he's commonly known as the Night Stalker. And he, you know, it's it's not a spoiler to say that he was he nice was caught. Yeah, yeah. And what the the, the perspective that the, the documentary takes is um, by interviewing the two detectives who were sort of the leads on the case, and um, you have the young uh, Hispanic rookie Gil Carrillo um, who was very new to the force at that time and then you have Frank Salerno who was really kind of like the celebrity detective you know if the the, the local media was would say that you know if he was on a case then you knew that this was like a big one mm. and he had actually sort of found fame within the LAPD already because he had caught the Hillside Strangler like a few back in the late 70s and he had cracked that case and uh, you know, he says at one point, you know, when you're a cop, you kind of dream of having this kind of big sort of serial killer kind of case, this kind of sort of fantastical kind of case that you know never really comes up except sort of in the movies. Mm. But to then have an, to then get another one just a couple of years later is kind of unheard of. And so he gets to sort of apply everything that he learned from the Hillside Strangler case uh, while, while sort of taking this young rookie under his wing. So it almost, it almost plays out like a kind of classic, a classic cop movie in that regard, you know, where you do have the veteran and the, and the, the wide-eyed rookie and they are sort of a mismatched duo on the, on the case. But it does a great job of sort of bottling the... The, the public sense of fear and... and uh... How does it deal with the police? Very quickly, it's nearly news time, we will carry on. How does it deal with the police? Because very often in these 70s and 80s big serial killer cases, the police get a panning mm. for mishandling it. I mean, obviously they didn't have technology well, then, they do now, but they get a, they get a massive slap for, for just being rubbish. Well, let's, um, there's quite a lot of that to get into, so I'll, I'll get into that after the news. Sit tight. Do join us on Facebook Live if you want to and, uh, you know, chat with James Marsh. He's looking for some suggestions for things that we all should check out on any platform. But uh, for the time being, let's you and I do the weather.
Well, still here for another 15 or so with Marshy. Join us on Facebook Live if you want to chip in. We're looking for help with... No, we're looking for suggestions, aren't we? Yeah, always. Not always help. on the lookout, no, particularly in these... <laughs> no, particularly in these difficult times, you know, when uh, our, our go-to options of the cinema are not available. Uh, so, yeah, always on the lookout for something good to watch on any legal streaming service. Oh, okay. uh, so let us know. Yeah. Let us know. All right, then. Just because um, I, I need more stuff to watch. Talking, uh, of, so talking of illegal, James, have, has Ammonite crossed your path yet? Uh, yes, and in a legal manner, actually. Yeah, I was sent a screener for that. Uh, fascinating story of uh, paleontology yeah. and uh, forbidden love with uh, Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. All right, we'll come to that whenever you decide. Anyway, carry on. Uh, yeah, no, that's going to be a tricky one to know when to talk to, talk about that one. Okay, so Night Stalker. Um, you know, another of the interesting aspects of the case that they discussed at great length was how, um, because the crimes were spread over quite a long uh, quite a long period of time, but also sort of quite a l spread out over the whole sort of LA County area, uh, the jurisdictional limitations really sort of played into how the case was investigated. Because you've got the two main lead detectives from LAPD, from LA County Police Department, but then you've also got the different sheriff's departments um, for each sort of county and neighborhood. And you've also got like the FBI who sort of come in as well, because it's a, you know, as soon as it becomes like a national crisis, they sort of want to take over. And they said that, that that was a real problem for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, things can get lost in the in the cracks, but obviously there is a real sort of ego issue at, at play, which was a very real sort of problem that they had to deal with, where everybody wants to be the one to uh, break the case. And so there was a reluctance to share new evidence and new information uh, on the off chance that that might be the key to that they would get the uh, get the collar as it were and so that you know and there, there's a number of very specific instances where because of that uh, they could have caught him but they didn't mm. uh, you know there's a car there's a car that could have been fingerprinted earlier there is a dentist office right, that, yeah yeah, so there's this car that got impounded that they knew that he had his palm prints on the on the bonnet and it was impounded and it sat there in the sun all summer long. You know, there are all these um, elements like this which I think is just as fascinating. Oh, it really as is. The actual, the actual. Uh, did you see the one about the Yorkshire Ripper by any chance? I can't remember what. It's. I did. So the police just they they didn't they didn't just kind of cock up. They suffered a humiliation like up to eleven. The big police chief basically was trying to sell his story to the Sun once he lost his job, mm. and it was it was a real bad moment for the police. And they were they were hoodwinked. In that case, they were hoodwinked by a um, a fake. F call, weren't they? Someone oh, that was that, that was it. It was. Um, it's it's <clears throat> me. I'm, ja I'm, I'm Jack. A I'm the Ripper. Yeah. And they identified his accent as coming from a particular region. So anybody that didn't have that accent, Geordie, very then, plain Geordie accent. And that's right. It was Geordie. Yeah, anyway, it was it was complete rubbish. And this guy, um, yeah. Anyway, you know the rest. It's worth watching. Sutcliffe. If, if we yeah. Could, Sutcliffe. Yeah. I mean, he was a Yorkshire lad through and through. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. So there's a few Sidebar. of these. Now. Mm -hmm. There's a. No, no, not at all, not at all. So there's a few of these popping up now on uh, on Netflix, and yeah, the Ripper about the Yorkshire Ripper, and also Night Stalker, uh, well worth having a look. If that's the kind of thing that sort of tickles your fancy, then uh, definitely have a look. There's another one I know coming up by the guy who did the um, the recent documentary about Ted Bundy, where they got all the the interview tapes for Ted Bundy. That one's it's called like the Ted Bundy tapes or yeah. something like that. Yeah, that yeah. one's already on, but he. Joe Berlinger, I want to say his name is, without looking it up. Um, 
has a new one about do you remember there was the um american chinese girl in the hotel somewhere in the u.s and you see her on the cctv and she gets in the lift and out of the lift and back in the lift and it looks like she's being chased and then she disappears and then they found her like a month later in the water stuffed into the water tank on the roof very there's a yeah there's a new one about that uh coming out i think early early next month or in a few weeks time uh and so that should be well worth checking out when it comes out um, right. Should we talk about these some, things? Are gruesome. These things are absolutely gruesome. But somehow you really you get stuck into them. They're made brilliantly, aren't they? They yeah, they are. And it's true. They they are gruesome, and a lot of them don't sort of hold back with the details. But I think that's what you want. I think if you're gonna if you are gonna sit down and watch one of these, you kind of want all the gory details. Otherwise, well, the Samsung version of it is like why bo- why even bother? So they're not for the faint of heart. Uh, even when when they are sort of about very well-publicized cases and they do uh, often include a lot of sort of new information that you may not have read about in the tabloids that's right and it's a real history lesson too because a lot of this stuff for some reason it did happen in the 1980s i think what makes these murder mm-hmm. cases going way back to the victorian era so fascinating is that these days they could be solved really easily well fairly easily I- I agree. I think that is a sort of a huge part of what makes them interesting is that it's as much a document of the period, uh, not only of sort of police work and forensic techniques and all the rest of it, but just of culture and, and attitudes to one another uh, play, a, play such a sort of strong part. Um, we're so used to seeing sort of CSI and Dexter and, and all the rest of yeah. it and just seeing everything, every case being cracked with a blood, blood splatter or a fingerprint or whatever. Um, and it's quite hard to, or quite easy to forget that that kind of forensic technology has only been around for sort of uh, the last sort of couple of few decades, really. Yeah, yeah. And is and is a lot harder to gather and uh, uh, use, correlate uh, than uh, often the the movies will have us believe. Mm. Moving on, join us on Facebook Live. I know some people are watching you, but everybody's being awfully quiet today. You're being stalked, oh, in fact. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> I am. I'm being. I'm being watched from afar. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, let's talk about. Let's talk about the White Tiger, which is a new film again on Netflix uh, as of later today, I believe, um, by Ramin Barani, and it is uh, adapted from uh, Aravind Adiga's book. Now, if I remember rightly, he that won the Booker Prize. He was like an Australian Indian uh, author and. So it has this kind of um, sort of diaspora uh, perspective, if you like, on sort of modern Indian culture. And essentially what it's about is about the evolution of modern India and the, how it's leaving so much of, of, the, of, it, of the old ways behind or to what degree is, is that the case and uh, how, how the new India can survive without the old India and, and all the rest of it, how, how it's holding it, it back and what have you. And it takes the form of uh, a letter or in this case an email that uh, our young protagonist, Balram, is writing to Chinese Premier Wen Xiaobao. Uh, it's set in like 10, um, 2010, tw- no, 28. Uh, and Wen Xiaobao is, a, is the premier at the time and he's, he's coming to India for like a big uh, big sort of economic summit. And so Balram is p- 
pitching pitching himself. He's like a self-made entrepreneur, and he's pitching himself to the Chinese Premier and saying, this is my story, essentially. So it's structured somewhat similarly to something like Slumdog Millionaire. Mm. Uh, not to just sort of pluck sort of one other random sort of westernized Indian movie. Uh, but, you know, in as much as you've got this young character who is from the streets, you know, from a, a very small village, he's a low caste character, and he has obviously made something of himself. And the film is structured around very detailed, very lengthy flashbacks about how he came to be in this situation. Uh, we learn very early on that he also is uh, uh, being hunted by the police for murder. And so we're like, what is going on? It turns out, as we learn, so he's from this small village and he sort of blags his way into a job as being the personal driver to the son of the local sort of village landlord, the village elder, who's this very sort of corrupt guy who runs a lot of mining companies or whatever and is really, really dodgy. The son, however, is very westernized. He's just coming back from the US and he's brought with him his uh, Indian-American wife played by Priyanka Chopra or I think Priyanka Chopra Jonas as we have to call her now uh, who's also it should be pointed out a producer on the film so he already has a sort of far more western skewed or international skewed view on the world Uh, his wife Pinky even more so uh, you know just very dismissive of the old ways the caste system uh, the sort of misogyny the sexism all the rest of it Ba- young Balram, who has been imbued with this uh, sort of honour code to honour one's master and to do what's right for one's master, also now is being presented with opportunities to, you know, make something of himself and to work the trust that his master has for him to his own advantage. Uh, you know, he t- he is taken by his new boss to Mumbai, you know, where he's obviously given a very sort of a uh, different lifestyle and it's quite a cushy existence sort of just being personal driver in a nice air conditioned car driving his boss around and he, you know he gets a little taste of the good life as it were and at the same time being in the big city he's exposed to all kinds of sort of nefarious influences and it's just about his story and i thought it's actually done really really well it's mostly in hindi but then there are obviously are sort of sections in in english as well uh, but it is very much sort of an, it's an indian movie it's not in the way that Slumdog Millionaire is like a Western movie about yeah, yeah, India, this is this is, this is this is this is an Indian movie, albeit one that recognizes the uh, the uh, symbiosis between the two cultures. Hey, let's chuck in a message here before you go on, if I may, just for a second, sure, because we sure, were we course. were asking for suggestions. You have a cup of tea. You take the take the mm. weight off your feet, love. Hello to Tim, who I think Tim, mate, are you still in Australia, mate? Anyway, Tim says scene talks about the investigation from Denmark, dramatized version of real events around the disappearance and death of journalist Kim Wall in the Nordic police genre, but applied to as close to as possible reflection of the true events around the investigation by the police. Tim says it's six episodes limited series. So there you go. Good suggestion. What what was the title of that one? Oh, hang on. Uh, The Investigation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that sort of Nordic noir style of police investigation is very, very popular. And also Nordic noir style of production. Have you noticed the the LUTs that they use on this this beautiful deep blue, rather gloomy? They look so stark, but and yet Mm. beautiful. The colours on these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's an incredibly sort of powerful uh, aesthetic. Yeah, you feel uh, dark and, don't you? You know what I mean? Anyway, thanks, Tim. Good to hear from you. 
It's great stuff. Uh, the investigation. Okay, I'll look into that one. Uh, so I liked The White Tiger quite a lot. I mean, it plays itself almost like a sort of gangster movie. It reminded me of, there's a French movie called A Prophet from about 10 years ago, which is about a sort of a petty criminal who is jailed for like, you know, a really minor offence. But over the course of his time in prison, hmm. he becomes like a proper criminal. You know, it's it's, you know, a, a very sort of barbed, criticism of the correctional uh, institutions and um uh this i think has elements of that because it's as much about young balram's sort of rise to power and notoriety uh by takes sort of starting to take advantage of his situation as it is an examination of how the the new india and old india are struggling to coexist in okay. the, in modern society uh, i i was quite impressed by it it's good fun all right, have you peaked or very, have, you got, very, have you got something else for us? There's one more, which is uh, outside, outside the Wire, oh, yeah. which is sci-fi action thriller starring Anthony Mackie, who most people will know as Falcon in the Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's set about 15 years in the future in the Balkans. Uh, the, the area has erupted in kind of civil war, and the US are there as a peacekeeping force because the UN feels sort of outgunned somewhat. Um, Military technology has advanced so much that there are sort of uh, robot droid infantry soldiers now. And, um, drone, you know, and it's the story of a drone pilot played by Damson Idris called Harp, uh, who makes a judgment call from way over back in the US uh, that kills two of his own Marines you know, for the greater good. Kind mm. of thing. He sort of makes a judgment call to sort of sacrifice them. He is punished by being sent to this hot zone and paired up with Captain Leo, played by Anthony Mackie, uh, who we quickly re- re- realise is a cyborg. He's really? a prototype military, uh, you know, robot from the future. You know, well, it's all set in the future. Uh, and they go outside the wire, as the movie is called, in order to try and stop a terrorist leader from finding some old Russian nuclear silo and taking over the world. You're doing that, yeah, whatever uh, thing. Blah, blah, blah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, because what the film does <laughs> is it sort of t- spends about the first half hour of the film setting up this world and the political problems and the technological advances and raising sort of questions of, uh, uh, you, know, you know, how much technology should be used in the military and how much should be left to human decision-making. You have this very compassionate cyborg character who understands humanity and understands empathy uh, way better than his human counterpart, this cold, arrogant drone pilot who uh, could do with feeling a little more. Uh, So it's an interesting setup, and then about half an hour in it decides, yeah, but let's just shoot some guns and blow some stuff up. Lasers. Well, yeah, almost lasers, you know, guns and explosions, old Cold War politics, and so ultimately... Forget, so forget this. It's not, yeah, I mean, it's if if you want some lowbrow, shooty-bangy stuff... Shooty-bangy. It, it, does, it does that, but considering how much um, exposition is dumped on you in the first 15 minutes or so, it really doesn't pay off. Well, this barrel that we are scraping seems to be really quite big, so well done. Just remind our listeners and viewers what it is you've been chatting about. Okay, so that is called Outside the Wire. There is also the uh, sort of Indian crime thriller, The White Tiger. Yep. There's the true crime White limited Tiger. series, N- Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is the fantastic nature documentary, My Octopus Teacher. And those are all on Netflix. We're going to leave it there. Thanks a lot, Marshy Movie Time. We'll be back next week. 